awesome stories, just, just fun stuff. And we are at the conclusion. This is our last week of Roadmap for Revolution, the series where we've been looking at the book of Acts and seeing what did it look like when Jesus came on the earth and inaugurated this revolutionary kingdom of God, what were some of the values that elevated um, in people, bubbled up in them during that? And that's where we're going today. And today we're going to be kind of taking, going to school on David Falk's example. What a great picture of this concept of relevance. A guy who is a chef, one of the best chefs in the city, bringing who he is, leveraging the relationships around him to advance the kingdom. That's what it looks like to be relevant. We're going to be talking about that today. Um, before we go further, I just want to ask that God would be our teacher in this time. So let's pray. God, um, I am asking that for all of us, as we conclude this series, that you would help us to uh, get a hold of what it is you want us to do. I believe that after this conversation that we're having today, there is a practical next step for everyone in here. And I'm praying that through my words, the Holy Spirit makes that clear to everyone in the room, regardless of where they are. And I pray that what produces or what comes out of this would um, reflect the character of Jesus and would be done um, for fame for his name. In Jesus' name, I ask that. Amen. So we've been in this series where we've been looking at Roadmap for a Revolution and just saying, hey, when, when you get involved in this revolutionary kingdom of God, there are certain values that just bubble up in you. And I just want to, by way of summary, kind of recap a couple things. First of all, we've used the word revolution and that revolution that we're talking about is the kingdom of God. Jesus inaugurated a kingdom when he came on the earth. He said he was here to establish the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was this holistic plan that was playing out throughout history where God was making men right with himself again. And he did that through bringing his son Jesus, having him be born through a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died a crucified death on the cross, but he rose again in three days. And because of him and people who believe in him and recognize that he's the way of reconciliation back to God, we are now part of this revolutionary thing that we see in the book of Acts. And in Acts, we've just been stopping along the way and saying, man, when the revolution gets a hold of your life, when the kingdom erupts in you, certain things bubble up. Things like commitment and just being committed to this cause of advancing the kingdom. Other things bubble up, like responding to a call, that there are specific things that God calls all of us to do at our spheres of influence in the kingdom, and we just see in the Bible and we see in modern day, when the revolution gets a hold of people, they're responding to calls in their life. And last week, Brian talked about freedom and grace and how when you engage in this revolution, when you receive Jesus, you just have ever-increasing levels of freedom and grace bubbling up in your life. And today, we're talking about relevance because it matters that we're relevant for the kingdom. It matters that as we reflect this revolution in the world, as we reflect this revolution in our city, that we're doing that in a relevant way. And we're going to talk about what that actually looks like today. Now, I want to say right up front that relevance is not about making Jesus look cool. I think a lot of times in Christian circles, that word relevance is used and it's bounced around and it boils down to, I got to wear cool t-shirts and then I'm relevant. You know, or I got to have a certain style or fashion statement that I'm making and then I'm relevant. And that's not what relevance is about. All of us who are engaged in the kingdom have the opportunity every day to be relevant for the kingdom. When I, when I think about people trying to make Jesus look cool, it, it just falls flat on its face. It never works. It's kind of like, you know, maybe, maybe you had one of these. Did anybody have, maybe in grade school, middle school, that one teacher who wanted to be hip or with it? 
that always thought they were cool. Anybody have one of those teachers? I, I had one of those. This was my gym teacher. And Mr. Conley just thought he was the coolest thing since sliced bread. And so what he would do, a lot of times he would substitute in other classes. And, you know, let's say if he was substituting for math class, grew up in the hip-hop generation, rap was really popular, you know, Mr. Conley would open up saying something like, what up, class? Let's kick it with math, you know, or something like that. It's like, dude, this is not working for you. This is not working for you. And some of you might have had teachers like that. But, man, it, that, is, that is not what we mean when we say relevance. It's not about this thing of making Jesus look cool. Relevance is simply being a credible witness for the revolution. Being a credible witness for the revolution. I love that about David Falk's story. He wasn't trying to be anything other than who he was, using the gifts that God had given him, and being a credible witness right where he was for the revolution that was going on inside of him. As a matter of fact, that's the specific command that Jesus gave to his followers before he left the earth. Let's go back to the beginning of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is about to ascend back to heaven, and he's giving kind of marching orders to the people who were closest to him at that time. And this is what he says in Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my, there's that word, witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. I actually had an experience that taught me a lot about, changed my perspective on what that word witness really looks like and what it means. Because when I was 23, I was just all ready to kind of jump into seminary and really get formal training to be a teacher and a, and a pastor. And at this point, I, I, at that time, I didn't do it, and I still haven't gone to seminary, haven't had professional training, but I learned something in the midst of that enrollment process that was really important for me. Because if I was to summarize, and I had to do that, I had to write an essay on why do you want a seminary degree? And if I had to summarize at that time my philosophy on why, it was really because I was subscribing to the Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran School of Evangelism. So I'm going to take some folks back, but if anybody remembers, there were two fights those two guys had, and the second fight is known for a phrase that Roberto Duran quoted later in the fight. If you remember, um, they were getting it on, they were boxing, it was going really well, kind of Sugar Ray's direction, and uh, Roberto Duran went to his corner, and in his corner, he's reported to have said, no mas, no mas, no more, I don't, I don't want to fight anymore, and that was how the fight ended. And so for me... That was kind of my philosophy when it came to sharing Jesus. Basically, I said, if I know enough Greek, enough Hebrew, enough Bible history, and enough apologetics, when I interact with people and debate with people, I can basically just beat them down until they say, no mas, no mas, Jesus is God, baptize me, do whatever, just leave me alone. Like, <laughs> that was my strategy. So kind of wrote that in my essay, and, and why, you know, wisdom steps in, and I actually said, well, maybe I should let some other people read this before I turn it in. So that was turned out to be a really good thing. Um, and one of the people I asked to read it was a pastor who's been pastoring um, 35 plus years in the city of Philadelphia, a guy I really respect. And I remember getting back his comments on the essay. And at the top of the first page, he wrote a statement that just really challenged me and convicted me. He said, Chuck, the gospel doesn't need a defense, just a witness. The gospel doesn't need a defense. God doesn't need me to be defending his honor. He doesn't need me to be fighting in the marketplace of ideas for him. He, he just needs me to be a credible witness for the revolution that he's already doing inside of me. The gospel doesn't need a defense, just a witness. And what we're going to look at today is how it looks to be a witness, a credible witness for the gospel. And we're going to look at a story that shows up in the book of Acts. It's a, another story of the guy Paul that we talked about last week. And Paul had a unique mission that he was given, which was he was Jewish, 
by culture and, and, and much by training. So his whole context was Jewish, and God really put on, on Paul this calling to go and take the good news of Jesus Christ outside of a Jewish context and engage in the predominantly Greek and Roman cultures that existed at the time. And so we're going to look at how Paul interacted specifically in the city of Athens in this context of being relevant. And, you know, just to give you a little bit of perspective, in many ways, the city of Athens, when Paul was there, is a lot like Cincinnati today. You know, here's what some, some folks had said about historically and in antiquity the city of Athens. It said the Greek religion was a mere deification of human attributes and the powers of nature. It was a religion which ministered to art and amusement and was entirely destitute of moral power. And can I just be honest and say that that statement could be said probably for most cities in the United States right now. And it could be said for the city of Cincinnati, particularly this idea of ministering to art and amusement. If there are high values in a city, usually that shows up in how they, sit, how they spend money. And one of the things that is just very clear about our city is, think about the money we've spent on stadiums in the last several years. Clearly, there's a desire for amusement, Newport on the levee, some of the things that have come up in the last several years. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not poo-pooing that. I'm all for it. I'm all for a Bengals game. I'm all for a, a Reds game. I'm all for that stuff. But it just clearly tells you kind of the dynamic going on in the city. On the positive, the ministering to art, something that you may not know is that Cincinnati is actually one of the top five art destination cities in the country. Don't know if you knew that or not. So clearly there is a value being raised here. So in many ways, Athens was a lot like Cincinnati. Another way that Athens was like Cincinnati, though, is as it said, this religion thing was just a plethora of different ideas, a plethora of different points of view. Everybody kind of had their own unique brand of spirituality. And there was a place called Mars Hill. You can kind of think about that as the Fountain Square of Athens, where people got together to dialogue and discuss the latest ideas. So everybody was into the new. What's the latest brand of spirituality? What's the next book I need to be reading to better myself? That was kind of the context of Athens, and it's very much the context of our city. And this is the culture that Paul steps into with the desire to be a credible witness for the revolutionary kingdom of God. And we're going to walk through the story of his interaction in Athens and, and literally just stop along the way and take notes and go to school on this guy because this is a textbook way that it looks to be a credible witness. The story starts in Acts chapter 17 at verse 16 where Paul had been in Athens for a period of time. He was waiting for some friends to join him. And this is what it says. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. The city was full of idols. You know, we look at Athens in antiquity, and for anybody who's been over to Greece, I'd love to go there someday. Um, you see all of these statues that have been preserved. Well, at that time, those statues had spiritual significance to the people of Athens. All of those statues represented a variety of ways people tried to connect with God, or a variety of deities that people lifted up as, this is a God, oh, and this is a God. And so Paul steps into this city, and it says he was greatly distressed. Another translation says, his spirit was provoked as he saw the city was full of idols. Another translation says, the longer he stayed in Athens, the angrier he got because the city was full of idols. And here's the interesting thing. Paul wasn't getting angry at people. 
He wasn't getting angry because people had idols. He was getting angry at what he saw as the spiritual deception of Satan that had taken hold of the city of Athens. See, the Bible talks about this spiritual being Satan, a fallen angel who has a desire to take away all of God's honor and ultimately to lead mankind away from God. And so when Paul stepped into this city and saw the city was full of idols, he said, man, I am angry because clearly the deception of the enemy is at work on the people of Athens. And you know what? The same could be said of Cincinnati right now. That there are people who have idols in our city. Idols that say, if I can just get the next promotion, then I'll be fulfilled. Idols that say, if I can just have enough interactions with the opposite sex, then that validates me as a man or that validates me as a woman. So that is my idol. Idols that say things like, look, you know, my family is my idol. I want to make sure my family situation is better than anybody else's. We need more money. We need a bigger house. We need to have a better relationship. Our kids need to be at the best schools. All of that becomes an idol. And so there are people in our city. This city is full of idols. And Paul steps into that environment. And the great thing I love is Paul recognizes that being a credible witness, the first thing is being a credible witness is about having the right intent. The right intent. Paul steps into that, and he's not getting angry at people, and he's not judging people. He's recognizing the enemy for who he really is, and he wants to engage and share with these people the truth that can free them from this search of all these idols that ultimately lead to nowhere. Paul knows that a credible witness has the right intent. You know, there are a lot of people who, in the name of relevance and trying to be truthful, don't have the right intent. You know, if your intent in talking to other people about Jesus, and and you may have experienced this. I know I'm talking a lot today to people who may be in the revolution, but even if people are kind of across the board spiritually, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later, um, you might have experienced people coming to you and saying things, saying that they're doing that because they want to tell you about Jesus. And, And sometimes it's clear that all you are to them is a statistic. All you are to them is a number. It's like they're in a sales campaign and they got numbers to hit. They got a quota to hit. I was talking to a friend this week when he grew up in a church that every week he was basically instructed, you need to share Jesus with 10 people. And then he'd come back and he had to check in on how he did. That's the wrong intent. That's the wrong intent. It's not about hitting a quota. And there are other people who share out of a, a spirit of religious obligation. You know, these are the Eeyore people. They're like, oh, another day. I got to share Jesus with somebody. Time to make the donuts. You know, wrong intent. <laughs> wrong intent. You know, and I, and I have to admit that I've been guilty of another wrong intent. It goes back to my Roberto Duran philosophy where I've been more interested in being right about the Bible than being relational with people about Jesus. I have to admit that that's one I fall into. As a matter of fact, a couple weeks ago I fell into this again. There's a guy that I meet with regularly, and I just, I just approached the relationship with a very wrong intent. My intent was basically to make sure he knew the right things about Jesus. And we would interact, and our interaction basically was point-counterpoint, and that was really all it was, point-counterpoint. What do you think? Oh, I think this. And it just went back and forth. And surprise, surprise, after a couple of times getting together, we weren't really getting, getting anywhere. And it wasn't really working out. And I remember having a time of prayer and talking to God about some things, and in the midst of that time, I just felt very clearly prompted by the Holy Spirit to say, hey, you need to apologize because you have not approached this relationship with the right intent. And I felt like in that moment, it was like, and in that apology, it may be the last time you get to connect with this guy because you've been really bugging him. You've been getting on his nerves. So I call him, and I'm like, man, I I have to admit, this has been my intent. 
I've been wrong and I need to apologize. And if you're up for it, I would love to continue to meet and just start over. Let's just get to know each other and, and connect relationally. And he responded to me and, you know, he was like, yeah, you were getting on my nerves. <laughs> he just, you know, <laughs> kind of called me out on it. He said, but I'm, I'm willing to continue to dialogue. I'm willing to continue to meet. And, and it was a great opportunity for me to recognize that if I'm not approaching this thing of being relevant with the right intent, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. If I'm not loving the people I'm communicating with, it doesn't count. Because credible witnesses have the right intent. There's a balance, though. There's a balance. Credible witnesses have the right intent, but they also share real content with people. They also share real content. I think sometimes in the name of relevance, we can stop short of sharing the truth that we've experienced of Jesus. And that is also not being relevant. And I think the way Paul approaches this with the people in Athens is brilliant. So we're going to go to school on what I think is probably one of the best communication strategies I've ever heard. It's in the Bible, and this is Paul engaging the folks in Athens. Remember, I talked about this place called Mars Hill, or the Areopagus was the Greek word for that. And that was the, kind of like the fountain square, where everybody would meet and dialogue and discuss the current ideas. And Paul had been in the city, had been talking to some people about Jesus, and it got to the kind of um, raised interest in the people who would gather at Fountain Square. And so they had invited him to come and talk to them about this new spiritual philosophy, because they were into new spiritual philosophy. And Paul steps into this culture, and this is what he says. He says, So Paul took his stand in the open space at the Areopagus and laid it out for them. It is plain to see that you Athenians take your religion seriously. When I arrived here the other day, I was fascinated with all the shrines I came across. And then I found one inscribed to the God nobody knows. I'm here to introduce you to this God so you can worship intelligently and know who you're dealing with. Hey, if you are a communicator in any level, take a lesson. Take a lesson, because the first thing Paul does is he meets them right where they are. Paul, again, Jewish by training. He could have walked them through the Jewish scriptures. He could have started with Adam and Eve and broke down Abraham, and then he could have went to Moses, and he could have preached. I'm telling you, he could have preached a good message, but it wouldn't have been relevant to those people. So he starts where they are. He says, hey, I've been in your city. I've been in your city, and I see that, man, you've got a lot of shrines. And I even came across one that says it's to an unknown God. The word unknown and the way that these people would describe themselves goes back to this word agnostic. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? It simply meant without knowledge of God. And the people in Athens would have labeled themselves agnostic. Hey, we, we're, we're searching, but we don't know of a one true God. So we have a variety of different deities that we engage. And Paul says, hey, you're agnostic. I see you've got this, this shrine to an unknown God. I want to make that God known. He meets them where they are, and he steps into the culture with relevant content right where they are. And he goes on to say this. The God, this unknown God who made the world and everything in it, this master of sky and land doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him as if he couldn't take care of himself. He makes the creatures. The creatures don't make him. Starting from scratch, he made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space for living so we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. And then he quotes, we live and move in him, can't get away from him. One of your poets said it well, we're the God created. Let's keep this up on the screen for a second. You'll notice that some of the words in this passage probably don't sound like words in many of your Bibles. 
And part of that is because I'm reading from a, a later translation of the Bible that's called the message. And the message is trying to write the same words in modern day language that you and I would use. And Paul employs this strategy. Not only does Paul meet people where they are, but he speaks in a language that they can understand. Paul never quotes from the Jewish scriptures at all in Athens. Instead, he quotes two dead poets that would have been very familiar to the people he was engaging at Mars Hill. This would have been the equivalent of me stepping into an environment and not using the Bible, but instead using Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People to communicate who Jesus is. And if I did that, there would be people who would say, that's incredibly controversial. You shouldn't do that. But Paul recognized the importance of speaking in their language. So he quotes two dead poets to kind of summarize what he's trying to show them about the God of the Bible. Basically, the one poet that says, we live in this God. We move in him. We can't get away from him. This God is around us. He is knowable, is what he's saying. And then the other poet that says, we're the God created. Not only is this God knowable, but he's the God who created us. Paul speaks in a language that they can understand. And there's another thing that Paul does. We're going to take a look at this because he's kind of going to turn. You know, a lot of times people have talked about the first part of his interaction in Athens to kind of make an excuse as to why they don't want to use the Bible. Or they make it as an excuse of why, yes, you don't have to, like, use Jesus' name. It's okay to generally talk about God. If that's what you believe, that's good. But if that's not where you believe, you actually believe Jesus is God, it is not right to not not go all the way. And we're going to see here, not only does Paul meet people where they are and speak in their language, but he boldly proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look as he continues on. He says, well, if we are the God created, it doesn't make a lot of sense to think we could hire a sculptor to chisel a God out of stone for us, does it? Now remember, what was the thing that Paul was so angry about in Athens? The idols, right? When, if he really believes that Jesus is God, why would he stop short of addressing what he sees as the primary spiritual issue? So he comes with real content. He goes on to say, God overlooks it as long as you don't know any better. As long as you are agnostic without knowledge, that's okay. But that time has passed. The unknown is now known. And he's calling for radical life change. Paul there is referencing the biblical um, concept of repentance and turning away from those things that aren't God and turning toward the God of the Bible and in Jesus Christ. He says, he has set a day, this God, when the entire human race will be judged and everything set right. That's the kingdom. And he has already appointed the judge, confirming him before everyone by raising him from the dead. And unequivocal, you can't debate it, he is talking about Jesus Christ. So Paul boldly proclaims the gospel to these people in Athens because that is the truth of God that he's experienced. It's the truth of God he knows, and he wants them to find freedom that comes from Jesus Christ. So he boldly proclaims the gospel. You know, in many ways, right now, this room is like Mars Hill. I know and I love the fact that at Crossroads, there are people all across the spectrum in terms of whether they believe there even is a God, or if they believe there's a God, they have questions about, but what does Jesus have to do with that? Or there are people in here who would say, yes, Jesus is God and I follow him. So in many ways, when I interact here, it's like interacting at Mars Hill. And I love that. I love that we're a community of people who are seeking truth together, regardless of our starting point. And, and at the same time, I feel that I have to share real content with you. I have to be a credible witness of what God has done in me, the truth that's been revealed to me. And can I just tell you that for me, the analogy that I would draw is this. I feel like everything that you try to find life in that is not Jesus Christ is like trying to find water in the desert. Everything. If, you're trying, if your idol is your job, I don't think that's going to fulfill you. 
If your idol is your relationships, I don't think that's going to fulfill you. If your idol is anything other than Jesus Christ, I think ultimately that is a desert. That is a desert. That's what I believe. And I believe that in Jesus Christ, I have found an oasis. I have found an oasis of life-giving water, and it would be like me being in the desert with all of you, recognizing that you're searching for water. I found an oasis, but I'm not going to tell you about it because I don't want to offend you. I'm not going to tell you about it because you might judge me. I'm not going to tell you about it because maybe you're going to be offended or something like that. Listen, I found water. I have found water in Jesus. Do you hear me? I have found water. I have found water. And so I can't stop short. If I want to be relevant for the kingdom, I can't stop short of sharing that. Paul boldly proclaims that this Jesus, this Jesus actually died and three days later he rose again. Crazy as that sounds, he rose again. I believe in a literal resurrected Jesus. I believe in a literal ascended Jesus. I believe he is literally God. I believe he literally sends the Holy Spirit that literally fills me with the divine presence of God. And I believe that I will literally live with him forever. I believe that. I believe that. And it's not being relevant to stop short of sharing what I believe. You know, one of the most profound things I heard on that this year came from an atheist. Came from an atheist, Penn of Penn and Teller. Many of us remember in um, a previous series that we did in our church, we looked at a YouTube video where he had talked about being interacted with by someone who was following Jesus. And he's an atheist. He didn't walk away from that believing that Jesus was God, but he said, I respect the fact that if that guy really believes that about Jesus, he would tell me about it. And And the picture he drew, he said, it would be like someone recognizing a person walking into the street and they see a bus coming to, get, to hit them, but they choose not to tell them about the bus. And he said, how much do you have to hate a person to not tell them about that? He said, it's my choice as to whether or not I believe, but if you really believe that you found an oasis, man, you need to be telling, you need to be a credible witness of that to people. And I'm not saying that to put guilt on people. I'm not saying to put guilt on people who struggle to talk about Jesus. I struggle to talk about Jesus to people who don't know him. So I'm not putting guilt on us, but I am saying that if we look at Paul's example, Paul did not stop short of a bold proclamation that he had found an oasis. And he talks to those people. And the cool thing, the encouraging thing, is what happens next. For me, Paul has the right intent. He steps into this culture. He speaks in the language they can understand with real content. And guess what? He gets a mixed response. He gets a mixed response. That's encouraging for me because as I've tried to learn how to interact and share my faith, I get a mixed response. I've had people tell me I'm crazy. I've had people tell me, man, I'm not sure I'm there yet. I've got a ton of questions. And I've had people say, man, I'm interested in learning more. I've had a mixed response. And Paul gets a mixed response. Let's take a look at how this plays out for him in Athens. It says, at the phrase raising him from the dead, when he talked about the resurrection, said the listeners split. Some laughed at him and walked off making jokes. This dude is crazy. He really believes this guy rose from the dead? That's crazy. Says others said, let's do this again. We want to hear more. But that was it for the day, and Paul left. There were still others, it turned out, who were convinced then and there and stuck with Paul. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris. Three responses that Paul gets. Some people sneer at him. Some people mock him, say he's crazy. And there are some people who believe. But I really love the the group in the middle. I love that there were people who said, man, I'm not there yet. But Paul, when can we talk about this some more? I'm interested in hearing a little bit more. 
And, and, and the thing that I love is in our Mars Hill context at Crossroads, I love the fact that there are people in here who think what I'm saying right now is not true or they have questions about it, but you're here. You're willing to engage in a place where you're going to hear things that maybe you don't believe and you're still coming. I, I love that. I love that. You're open to truth. You see, I think there are two sides of this thing. For us who are in the kingdom, people who believe this stuff, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we really relevant? Are we really being a credible witness? But I think for people who aren't in the kingdom, people who don't believe this, the question is, but am I open to this truth? And I continue to be just amazed at how many opportunities I have to be credible witnesses for the kingdom outside of this context. You know, I'll tell you this. If my witness for Jesus is limited to a 35-minute dialogue that I get to have, or 35-minute lecture that I get to have maybe once or twice a month, what good is that? What good is that? You and me have opportunities and choices every day to be sharing this oasis that we found in Jesus. One of the places for me I continue to see those opportunities is in my neighborhood. My wife and I were walking in our neighborhood and came across a neighbor that we just, you know, we kind of see him when it's warm, and then everybody hibernates in the winter. I don't know if it's like that in your neighborhood, but, you know, it's one of these things. So when it was warm, we started to see him again. We walk up to him, we're interacting, and he's like, man, I can't believe how big Nathan's getting, and we're talking about that. And he just, he just starts sharing stuff that's going on in his life. And one of the things was that he was really struggling through his son and daughter-in-law's um, issue with trying to get adoption for these kids in Africa. They've been trying to adopt these kids for a long period of time. And it was just clear as he began to talk about this that this really was bothering him. And I remember just sitting there listening to him, and something in me was like, get the names of those kids and and his son and daughter-in-law and pray for them. And then there was another voice in me that was like, you can't do that. Come on, he's going to think you're crazy. Like, you know, just, you don't have to get specific names. Why don't you just, like, you can pray later. You don't have to publicly tell them you're going to pray for them. Just, just chill out. And I just wrestled through that, and I, I said, no, I'm going to be bold. And, and I asked him, I said, hey, would you mind giving me the names of your, your son and daughter-in-law and those two girls? Because I want to pray for them. I want to pray that, that God would actually work that out. And you could see the look on his face. He was like, Absolutely. Absolutely you can. He gave us the names, and he was so grateful that we offered that up. Now, he could have had a different response, but I'm not responsible for the response. See, the gospel doesn't need a defense, just a witness. That was an opportunity for me to be a credible witness and just say, hey, this is what I believe. I believe that Jesus actually still gets involved in human affairs. I believe that the God that I serve can actually interact with a government in Africa and cause your family to get favor so that two kids can be adopted into a home where they're going to be loved. I believe God does that. So if I'm not offering that oasis to my neighbor, then do I really believe it? And so I did that, and he just received that, and it's been awesome. And every time I see him, I just want to follow up and say, hey, how's it going? We are praying for your family. How's it going? Because it's an opportunity to be a credible witness. And so as we conclude today, I want to I leave you guys with two questions. I think there's two different audiences in here. Um, and the question that I would say that I want you to think through, if you are a person who says, yeah, I believe that. I found an oasis, and I'm in the revolution. I want to be relevant. The question I'd have you think about is, where is your Mars Hill? Where's your Mars Hill? I'm realizing I have a ton of Mars Hills in my life. Maybe you play basketball every week with some guys. And that could be a Mars Hill for you. Maybe it's your job, your neighborhood. Maybe it's the people right in your home. But but where is your Mars Hill? And in that Mars Hill, are you engaging with the right intent? And are you being bold? 
And I also know there are people in here who are still at just early phases of the journey. You're very much like the people who were hearing Paul in Mars Hill for the first time. And the question I would encourage you to think about is, are you open to truth? Are you open to the fact that maybe, just maybe, there's something to this God thing? And the thing that I love about this story is the people who were open to truth didn't sit back and passively expect truth to just kind of pop up on their, you know, on their radar screen. They engaged. They said, hey, Paul, when can we talk about this a little bit more? I want to understand a little bit more. And I think for all of us, if you're here and you're not necessarily following Jesus today or not necessarily believing all this, the question would be, what would it look like for you to be open to truth? What might a next step look like? And here's what I know. I know that no matter which of those camps you find yourself in today, God is near. He's not playing hide and seek, and he wants to meet you right where you are. And so as we close, I just want to pray. I just want to pray that God would actually meet us where we are and that he would show us the Mars Hills in our life. And he would also show us what it looks like to pursue truth. Let's just pray together on that. Um, God, I do believe that. Um, To the core of my being, I give my life for it. Um, you are a God who is near, and you want, to, you want to give us truth that we can feel. And so, God, I'm asking that you would help us to see the Mars Hills in our life. If we are people who have received your truth and we have received your son, help us to boldly go after the Mars Hills in our life and to be credible witnesses for the revolution. And, God, I also pray for people who may be seeking that truth and and are just still on that journey, God, that you would help them to see what it looks like to take a next step. Maybe it's just coming back for a second week. Maybe someone invited them, and they can just have a conversation over lunch that turns from just social stuff to into, man, tell me more about what you believe. Maybe it's about getting connected and involved in a team around here and finding something they're passionate about and just being part of the community and figuring out if in the midst of that you'll show up and and reveal truth. God, whatever that is for us, I pray that you would show it to us. And I'm confident that you will. Amen.